I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft's Eli Clifton discusses a report he wrote for Responsible Statecraft and The Guardian about earning reports that indicate Wall Street is looking to make profits for its shareholders in lieu of the Israel-Hamas war. We'll also be discussing defense industry monopoly capitalism and the risks of the current war turning into a broader regional conflict. All that and much more with Eli Clifton. So, with that being said, let's get right to it, folks. Welcome back to Parallax News, guest that I always enjoy speaking with, Eli Clifton, a senior advisor at the Quincy Institute and investigative journalist at large at Responsible Statecraft, the official publication of the Quincy Institute, and author of the recent piece that was, I believe, uh, co-published with The Guardian. So it's a Responsible Statecraft uh, Guardian crossover piece. Uh, Wall Street eyes big profits from Israel Hamas war. How are you doing? I'm 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 doing all right. How how are you doing? I mean, I think we're both saying all right, but it's very turbulent yeah, times. That's as good as so, it gets. Right. <laughs> that's that's the best you can hope for right now. So let's talk a little bit about uh how this article came about because I haven't seen many publications looking at, you know, this angle, you know, who's gonna bring in the dough from this war that has broken out the past 27 days. Well, you, you know, in fairness, I, I think some publications and uh, and definitely some advocacy groups, and myself included, uh, pay a fair amount of attention to the uh, earnings calls, quarterly earnings calls conducted by the uh, major weapons firms. 
because over you know in the time I've been monitoring them at least, and and I've noticed that I get pretty good pickup when I talk about it because people don't really pay attention to them. But you often have the executives from these weapons companies uh, saying pretty blunt things because they're not talking to their customers. They're not talking to the U.S. government, who happens to be their biggest customer in most cases. They are talking to their shareholders. And as a result, they will often talk about how, for instance, they stand to profit from a, a war in Ukraine or a war in Gaza. Um or how they uh, are hopeful about a ballooning defense budget that will continue to underwrite the prestige weapon systems that that they really, really, really like to be building, uh, because those things have just an incredibly long tail for the for the process and the profit that can be derived. Uh, and in most cases, there's very little competition for them in those spaces also. Uh, and these are all sort of the tidbits that that myself and I know some other journalists who have been doing it as well uh, have started to focus on from these earnings calls. And, you know, last month, and I guess it may continue into maybe this week as well, um, the third quarter earnings calls, I, I decided I was going to take a slightly different approach, which is that while I I'll continue to report on what the executives say from these companies, because I think it, it is uh, illuminating, um, at the end of the day, they're simply saying out loud what anybody who pays attention to the military industrial complex and to weapons firms would expect them to say, right? I mean, these companies are fundamentally in the business of making weapons that kill people. And it stands to reason that war is something that would be profitable and good for these companies and, and in turn, very good for the shareholders. And, you know, it is jarring to see them talk about it in a manner where they're saying that uh, it is logical and rational. And so, what I was interested in, what kind of jumped out at me uh, this time, was that what I actually saw as being the most jarring statements made on a couple of the earnings calls weren't actually coming from the weapons companies themselves. It was coming from some very name brand uh, major banks and the analysts from them. And these banks, as you might expect, have you know some pretty big funds, including some index funds, that uh, are quite heavily invested into some of these weapons companies. And, and what we saw was uh, analysts from, uh, in this case, it was Morgan Stanley and TD Bank, uh, you know, talking in really blunt ways, asking about the potential profit making uh, uh, that escalation in the conflict could 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 offer for these these weapons firms. Uh, and at the point when they were asking these questions, you know, it was over seven thousand Palestinians had already died, fourteen hundred Israelis. Um, yet we have, you know, TD Cohen analyst Kai von Rumer, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, you know, coming out of the gate and 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 uh, saying, "Hey, Hamas has, as he put it, quote, created additional demand. <laughs> we have this 106 billion dollar request from the president. Uh, can you give us some general color in terms of areas where you think you could see some incremental acceleration in demand?" Uh, and it's really funny because you know Jason Aiken, who was uh, the executive vice president at, uh, uh, I believe it was uh, General Dynamics, who fielded that question, actually seemed a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> how crass it was. And he goes, "Well, you know, the Israel situation obviously is a terrible one, frankly, and one that's just evolving as we speak." And then he says, "Yeah, but I think if we're if we're going to see incremental demand potential, it's going to come from the artillery side, uh, which is indeed what <laughs> Israel needs more of to bombard Gaza." Um, and so, uh, 
you know, this just to take that example, and, and then I, I would add the the one from uh, uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, where the Morgan Stanley analyst, uh, this was speaking to Raytheon, uh, quarterly earnings said, looking at the White House's $106 billion supplemental funding request, you know, you've got equipment for Ukraine, air and missile defense for Israel, and replenishments of stockpiles for both. And this seems to fit quite nicely with the Raytheon defense portfolio. So how much of this opportunity is addressable to the company? And if the dollars are appropriated, when would be the earliest you could see this, this convert to revenue? Um, <clears throat> so what's intriguing here is that, listen, Raytheon and General Dynamics, they're only going to sugarcoat what they do so much, right? I mean, we all know what their what their biggest you know, products are, um, what those products do, uh, and they're not going to lie to you beyond a certain point. But what I find particularly interesting here, and this is, I know it's a long story, but you know, you start to look at TD and you start to look at Morgan Stanley and you realize that they have these human rights policies um, at their companies. Uh, they both have, quote, statements on human rights. And both of these statements explicitly endorse the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Um, <clears throat> and they say things such as, you know, Morgan Stanley says, we exercise our influence by conducting our business operations in ways that seek to respect, protect, and promote the full range of human rights. Um, and uh, although we believe that governments around the world bear primary responsibility for safeguarding human rights, we acknowledge the corporate responsibility to respect human rights articulated in the UN's guiding principle on business and human rights. And, and TD has very similar language that they throw around. You know, in just three days into this conflict, you know, the United Nations Human Rights Council issued warnings saying that there was clear evidence that war crimes may have been committed on both sides of the conflict. Um, so <clears throat> it's not really that big of a leap to say that um, these companies, in the case of General Dynamics and Raytheon, they're providing weapons to one party in a conflict that the UN is saying there's a high likelihood human rights violations are occurring in, uh, and these companies that hold millions of dollars in stock in these weapons companies have policies saying that, hey, they don't wanna be a part of business transactions or investments that uh, will be used to violate human rights. Yet, yet here we are, um, and it seems as if their primary concern on the earnings call, and they could have been asking questions about human rights, but instead their question was about, hey, how much money are we going to make here? So in regards to that, I, I mean, so we know about, you know, weapons contractors and companies like Raytheon, you know, they do financially benefit from wars, but you're focusing here on Wall Street. Uh, is this like unprecedented or uh, are there other examples of this happening in the past? Well, I, I know these companies have been, you know, pressed to engage in uh, various forms of ethical investing. That's one of the reasons that they have these stated policies. Um, you know, they uh, want to have a seal of approval saying that they uh, invest in a socially responsible manner, and that these are companies that behave uh, in you know, trying to further and advance human rights. Um, but I think what this really reveals is that those efforts, and maybe it hasn't been so focused on their investments on weapons so much in a broad, as, as a broader uh, concept of the ethical investing and in line with, uh, with, with the international notions of human rights being protected, um, is that perhaps what these banks were really seeking, and, and I, I do think this is the case, is they simply wanted a rubber stamp. They simply wanted to say that they were, uh, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, <clears throat> but 
push comes to shove, um, they're not looking to divest from companies that are pretty explicitly involved in a conflict where human rights are being violated. Uh, again, to the contrary, um, at no point was that raised in any of the earnings calls that I listened in on um, as the major bank analysts. Uh, Some of us asked completely unrelated questions to this conflict, uh, but most of these weapons companies did acknowledge that the conflict was, go was going on, that it was going to impact demand for their products. Um, and analysts from a host of banks that are that are you know very name brand well known you know you know TD Bank you see it Morgan Stanley you know it you see it um, they they were not expressing any concern whatsoever that I ever heard uh, about the ways in which um, <clears throat> their investments in these weapons companies were being used to harm human rights. Now you you talked to I think. Um some ex experts on finance and the arms trade uh, for this article. I think Shauna Marshall was the one you referenced. Uh, could you speak yeah. about how other people have commented on this academics or other people who research this? Yeah. So, I mean, the great point she made is that, well, the UN, the, the universal declaration of human rights, it's, well, it's only as good as how it's interpreted by a host government um, and how they would, you know, choose to prosecute or enforce that concept or that law. Um and as she put it, you know, these analysts can feel safe in the knowledge that the U.S. government is never going to interpret that law in such a way that they will be prevented from exporting weapons to a country that the U.S. doesn't have an outright embargo on. Um, and that those embargoes, incidentally, on uh, very rarely, if ever, have anything to do with human rights law in any possible way. It's far often uh, done as a political decision um, regarding, you know, not wanting to give weapons to what's perceived as a U.S. adversary. Uh, but we export weapons all the time to countries that are known human rights abusers. Um, <clears throat> while we certainly do have some laws about that, um, the enforcement of it is uh, pretty uh, infrequent and, and lightly implemented. Um, now, another another person I talked to was Kor Udes, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, um, who, who, who spoke to the, the UN guiding principle on business and human rights, which again, both of these companies um, um, uh, say that they abide by. Um, and, and he said pretty clearly that, you know, hey, if a bank invests in an arms producer that supplies weapons to states which are engaged in violations of human rights uh, or international human rights law, <clears throat> well, according to those principles, you know, the bank has a responsibility to act to prevent more violations. Um, and again, it, I think it really showed how these uh, uh, policies these banks have you know, these multi-billion-dollar investing vehicles that, that they are, um, that that they simply don't care. Um, you know, they didn't respond to requests for comment, uh, and you know, we didn't put it in the article. But I'll tell you, uh, <clears throat> TD Bank came back to us uh, after publication, uh, and it didn't like the subhead that the Guardian had put on it that had said that these banks were hoping for profits, um, and 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 it's like, well, you're invested in these companies. You are asking about the profit-making potential for these conflicts on the bottom line for uh, these weapons firms. You know what? From outward appearances, you guys are hoping for profit, and you're hoping to make a profit off of a dreadful conflict that is uh, it's bad for human rights. It's bad for the people who are involved in the conflict. And I might add it's bad for U.S. national security. You know, this is drawing us closer to being pulled back into a war in the Middle East. We now have uh, have, have shifted, I believe, it's two aircraft carriers now to the Eastern Mediterranean. 
Um, there are questions about the safety of U.S. troops in Syria. Um, there is an escalatory potential here that would be disastrous for the United States, for U.S. core national security interests. Um, so it's not just about human rights. It's about U.S. national interests. And on both of those, uh, it's, it's kind of clear that Morgan Stanley and TD uh, are not losing any sleep. And I would dare say that they're, it appears that they're sort of rooting for the other side of it. So one interesting thing that comes up is you talked about these UN guiding principles, but in this article, you also talk about, you know, the UN isn't going to act as a legal arbiter in all of this. It right. really can't. Uh, so, I mean, really, uh, for something to be done about this, uh, the U.S. state would have to get involved, right? Yes, that's right. And, and you know, th that was a core point that was that was made by, by Shannon Marshall was that, you know, it's 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 highly unlikely that you would see in this case in the United States, but whatever country you're, these companies are operating under the, under the jurisdiction of, um, it's highly unlikely you would see them crack down on weapons exports to in this case Israel because, um, among other reasons, it, it, it's not just about you know the the so-called special relationship the United States has with Israel. It's actually you know a far greater trend in U.S. weapons exports, which is that we don't put embargoes on countries as a general rule that are in violation of various um, UN standards of human rights. Um, we will put embargoes on countries that are perceived as adversaries. Um, so it's far more real politique than, than anything ideological or moral uh, in how we conduct ourselves in terms of uh, who we allow uh, American weapons manufacturers to export to versus those that we forbid them to export to. Where do you think um, public opinion is headed on these issues? Because I feel like, especially with this particular conflict, you know, I think Israel-Palestine is an issue that, you know, really causes high emotions in this country uh, on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, war profiteering has been tackled before in this country, and there's been strong opinions about it, even if you look at... Um, the period after World War One, right? You had the the whole Nye Committee, and there was a big public uh, uproar about questions of war profiteering. Uh, do you think we could move into another period of, um, you know, public outcry about the issue of war profiteering? You know, I, I would love to say yes, um, but I, I think in this case. Oh well, for starters, I, I think the concept of war profiteering probably isn't as widely. Uh, understood or something people are as concerned about as they have at various points in the past. However, uh, I also do see opportunities for similar issues or sort of um, um, parallel issues to sort of get at the same point, which is that you now there's also a very strong argument to be made about uh, anti-monopoly um, uh, laws and, and policies and the fact that you know, the big five weapons manufacturers in very many cases have what appear to be monopolies. You know, they, they, a lot Could of their contracts that are a little no bit more for, if I have audiences that are yeah. familiar with that aspect. Sure. So there's been a ton of consolidation. Uh, so there's, there's at least a few strands here. There's been a lot of consolidation in the weapons industry. Um, you know, there's basically, I think it's still one independent manufacturer of, of like, of, of, of rocket engines for missiles left, um, which was a big you know, achievement. There was a big push to, hey, maybe they shouldn't allow consolidation of that into one of the big five. Um, 
So you have this consolidation of the weapons industry into sort of five companies. Uh, and the result is that, um, one of the results of that is that you get far less competition in the bidding process for Pentagon contracts. At the same time, you have the portion, as the defense budget grows, it hasn't been growing proportionally in terms of the various components of it. The amount that go to uh, salaries for soldiers hasn't gone up anywhere near the same rate that the portion of it that goes to defense contractors do. At this point, we have something like an $800 billion a year defense budget. Roughly 50% of that goes to contractors. 30 or 40 years ago, that's not what it looked like. It was a much smaller share of the defense budget. So the amount is, that goes to the contractors is going up. The number of contractors who are sharing that pie is going down. And finally, you have this shift toward prestige weapon systems. Things like the F-35, and there's other ones like that that are less well known as the literal combat ships, for instance. And among other things, these, these systems, well, as we know, in both cases, they, they don't often work in the ways that they are promised that they will work. But the other thing about them is that they are so complex. There's so many pieces to them. There's so many subcontractors involved. They're so technologically advanced that <clears throat> there's no way you could have anybody competing for these contracts. There's really one company that can even put these things together so that there, there's no competitive aspect to the market at play. And once the Pentagon has committed to these systems, it's not just a year-to-year -year thing, it's a decade-to-decade -decade thing. So just like we saw with the literal combat ships where the Navy said, hey, these things don't work. We actually think they are detrimental to the force. We would like to get rid of them. And the defense lobbyists working with Congress said, no, you're stuck with them. And you're not just stuck with that piece of metal, you're stuck with the servicing of them, you're stuck with all of the contracts that are going to kick back to the contractors who made these ships that don't really work. Same thing with the F-35, the servicing of these. And now the export of them to, to heavily to NATO countries, the interoperability, all of that, a lot of that ends up, the result is more ongoing contracts for one or two companies. It does not get spread around there is no competition. So that's what I say. Is it an emerging monopoly situation? It certainly looks that way. Um, and it, again, this isn't good for US national security. It's not good for force readiness. Um, we're not necessarily getting the best value. And in the case of the F-35 and the literal combat ships, we are literally not getting the weapons that in many cases, the force is for. What was that last part you cut out there for a second? Oh, I was saying that in the case of the F-35, you're not even getting the weapons and the capabilities that the Navy or the Air Force are even asking for. Okay. So then uh, I don't know if you want to comment on uh, this issue of the money that the Biden administration is requesting from Congress. Uh, how important do you think it is that people uh, pay attention to that? You know, the, the Biden administration is other putting aside the top line, uh, which is, is a lot. It's what was $106 billion supplemental funding request, um, which was to be split between Ukraine and the larger between Ukraine and Israel with a heavy tilt toward Israel. Um, one of the justifications that the White House gave, and I, they circulated talking points immediately after the president made these remarks, is that this is uh, somehow going to be an economic stimulus and a benefit to the U.S. economy and to U.S. workers. And, you know, one study after another has shown that if that is your goal, 
the defense industry is a terrible job um, because, among other things, these are for-profit companies. It is in their interest to siphon out as much of that and kick it back to their shareholders as possible. And in the case of many of the defense contractors, uh, just this year, they paid record stock dividends and they did record stock buybacks. That's where those tax dollars that went half of the that $800 billion defense budget, the $400 billion that went to defense contractors, a lot of that didn't trickle down into jobs, and it didn't, and it didn't go into developing factories and and assembly lines for making the weapons that that were needed to for Ukraine or in this case Israel and to or for other U.S. defense needs and strategic interests. Instead, a lot of that money was just it just went in one door and it went out the other. It literally was stuffed into the pocket of some shareholders, and. You know, that to me doesn't sound like a great jobs program. It doesn't seem like a great justification um, for the supplemental spending request that is, uh, again, apparently because they didn't feel it was a good enough argument that this is somehow the right thing to do to give this aid to Ukraine and Israel. They also had to make this bogus argument about it being good for American workers. Yeah, I was going to say that was in Biden's most recent speech. He was like, well, this is going to create jobs and you know, I, I forget what states he mentioned. I, like, let, let's assume it was like he maybe said Michigan or Vermont or, you know, <laughs> but he was literally saying, you know, he was openly saying, yeah, war is going to be good for the American worker. And you're saying, oh, hold your horses there. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, you know, again, you think defense budget, you think that, well, that's going to go to, you know, to paying salaries. It's going to go to, uh, you know, supporting the you know the core infrastructure of the Department of Defense. Now half of it goes to five companies, and and again the interest of those five companies is not U.S. national security. It's not U.S. strategic interests. It's not keeping Americans safe. It's not even helping allies. It is to create profits for their shareholders. If their executive acted in any other manner. What they would be doing would be considered, you know, a violation of their responsibilities to the company. What do you think the biggest misunderstanding or maybe uh, unspoken of aspect um, that people miss, I guess, when when people uh, that are if someone's unfamiliar with this, what do you think the most important flashpoints are for them to understand in, in terms of? of the defense budget or in terms of just the... in terms of the defense budget, where the money goes. Um, and I guess, I think we're told a lot of lies, you know, I mean, uh, you see the uh, double speak from companies like Raytheon at times where they're like, well, actually, you know, we're selling weapons because we're pro peace. I remember hearing a Raytheon person say that. So I, I think uh, it would be useful to cut through some of, like I said, it just seems like double speak that comes out of the yeah. pro defense industry lobbying. I mean, to, to, to me, and this sort of goes back to where we started, you know, all you have to do to sort of burst that bubble is to listen in on their earnings calls. And putting aside what the banks ask um, and the analysts ask, because they can ask whatever they want, you know, the 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 things that are said by executives on these calls, from the, just the big five weapons firms, let alone the second tier, the, the big five weapons firms. Anytime there is a blow up in anywhere in the world, you know, and I followed it closely when the war in Ukraine started. These guys get on there and say, hey, this is going to be good for us. It's very blunt. 
they don't pull their punches when they're talking to their shareholders. And that doublespeak that that they that they conduct when they're you know in a more outward facing role when they're talking to the media when they are running ads in the Washington Metro, for instance, which we just ran a story about at Responsible Statecraft, and I encourage you guys to look at it that Brett Hines wrote about. You know, it sounds weird, but you know, any subway and metro system you're on in the world, you see, you're going to see uh, uh, you know, ads for consumer products. In the DC Metro, you see ads for weapons, and they'll say things like, "Yeah, this is good for peace. The, this is, you know, good for U.S. interests." But you know what? You go to those earnings calls. Oh boy, it's a different message they send, and I think that's them being honest because they're actually talking to their bosses. They're talking to their shareholders. These are the people they actually work for. And when they're talking to them, they say, hey, I think there's going to be a war in Eastern Europe. It looks like there's a war in the Middle East. It seems like there's tensions ramping up in East Asia. There's a potential for a conflict over Taiwan. And all of these are driving our sales and our bottom line. And they're very clear. And so I, I would encourage you to, and your listeners, if you wonder what these weapons companies really think, what their view is really on peace versus war, listen to the earnings calls. Because the earnings calls, I've never heard them celebrating the outbreak of peace. I've never heard them celebrating it when there's uh, a lack of conflict. What I have seen them say is at the top of an earnings call, hey, there's a war breaking out, and here's our lines of products that we're going to sell a lot of. I was going to say, I don't want to go too far afield, but... It brings to mind, I've I've often thought about this when people talk to me about, you know, the what's thrown around is the ethical capitalism or stakeholder capitalism. I, I know people that are very high on that concept, but I've always said, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, all of these companies that claim to be engaged in this stakeholder capitalist idea where it's not just the shareholders that we're responsible to. I mean, to me, you're you're still ultimately responsible to the shareholders. And I think this is an example of that being very much the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also you know feel strongly about you know pushing back against that because you know it, it, you're engaged in you know in, in some sort of fiduciary mal- malpractice if you're not being responsive to the shareholders. I mean, these executives and board members, have a, a legal responsibility. Um, and if they are somehow acting in someone else's interests or failing to make decisions that are beneficial to the bottom line of these companies, um, well, for starters, they're going to lose their jobs. They may face lawsuits um, because they're, they're simply breaching their responsibilities as, as board members and executives. Uh, and again, on the earnings calls, uh, there's, there's, there's no ambiguity about who they work for, what their ultimate goals are and what world events and political events are beneficial to those goals. I was going to say real quick, because I don't know if we mentioned the big five, uh, you know, arms contractors. So it's what Boeing general dynamics, uh, Lockheed Martin, Northup, Grumman, and Raytheon, right? Those are the five? Uh, it is, uh, let's see, yeah, Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed, and uh, General Dynamics. 
I was also going to ask, with regards to what you said about this escalating potentially to a larger uh, regional conflict, I know a lot of people right now that are saying, oh, well, didn't you just see that speech by Hezbollah's Nasrallah? You know, he's sort of backing off from getting involved in like a full-scale war with Israel, uh, that means there will be no regional conflict. And I, I kind of think people are being naive about that in the sense of, you know, it's like we're on a roller coaster ride. And, you know, uh, one false move can lead to an escalation and that can lead to a regional exactly. conflict. I think people are being very naive when they think, oh, well, that's this one speech means I don't think there's going to be a regional conflict. Anything can happen still. Absolutely. And, you know, like, let, let's just take everyone at face value here. I believe Nasrallah, I believe that Hamas, I believe Netanyahu, probably none of them want to have a total regional quagmire come out of this, right? But there are a lot of moving pieces here. There's a lot of uncertainties. There's a lot of opportunities for a black swan event. You know, Hamas's, you know, a, 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 you know initial attack on, on Israel that, you know, and, and taking of hostages and killing Israelis. All of these are events that have an ability to spin out of control, to have unintended consequences. And, you know, I, I think that that an aspect of this conflict that, you know, obviously I understand the scrutiny and the concern about, about Hezbollah, that would be a game changer if they entered the conflict in a major way. It deserves, you know, I, I understand people feeling a sense of relief after the speech today. Uh, totally justifiable. But we are not, we are not out of danger yet. You know, you have Israel continuing to engage in a conflict in Gaza that could create some really destabilizing elements in the region. Uh, and two others I would point to that I think don't get very much attention is, uh, you know, what this could do in Egypt and perhaps more importantly, what this could do in Jordan. You know, the legitimacy of these governments could hang in the balance. The ability of e the Egyptian government to withstand public uh, outcry and opposition is obviously pretty strong. The Hashemite kingdom might be different. You know, you have an enormous Palestinian population in Jordan. What happens if they, you know, start to, you know, either say that, hey, we're going to we're going to march to the West Bank or if they say, you know what, we're going to rise up against you know, the security forces here because we think they're collaborators. Um, I think that you could have you know, a situation develop in either country that could be uh, really dramatically escalating uh, and, and destabilizing in the region, bringing all sorts of uncertainties. Um, and incidentally, I don't think Hezbollah is exactly off the table yet as a potential participant in this war. Again, a lot of things can happen, some of them inadvertent, some of them just uh, uh, escalations or consequences that, that one party didn't anticipate from the other. Um, remember, you know, it, it, Israel is striking Hezbollah, in, you know, in some limited ways. Hezbollah yeah. is sort of involved already. All yes, Nasrallah absolutely. said was, we're not going to get, you know, at all like he, he implied that we're not going to go all out but there's still going to be rocket exchanges you know right right and you know and his notion of well you know it, it, obviously he would prefer not to go all out uh but i'm sure there are trip there are red lines for hezbollah where they will go all out there are probably red lines for israel where they will also go all out against hezbollah and in either of those cases you know you could see there be an escalatory cycle between israel and hezbollah that would be um you know produce an outcome that perhaps neither party particularly wants uh, but could get very scary very fast. And and I think that, you know, the, the dynamic of the region right now, not to mention having U.S. troops in Syria, um, there are a lot of potential targets for somebody who wants to broaden this war, 
for someone who wants to escalate it. There's a lot of weaponry in play. Again, you have the United States now with aircraft carriers in the region. Um, th th there really is capacity here for things to spiral out of control. There's a lot of actors in this. Um, some you can all, and, I, and I think that that uh, dynamic of having multiple parties at play means that it's a lot harder to gauge um, you know, the escalatory potential of an individual action. Just a few more things here briefly in, in the broader context that we're sort of getting into here. Uh, you mentioned Syria a few times. Uh, I feel like I don't, I haven't heard as much with regards to Syria and this uh, current war. Uh, how important do you think it is to pay attention to what's going on in Syria? I mean, I, I think it's pretty important because of the significance of, um, you know, the, the the idea. If there is a dimension here that could bring Iran into the conflict, it, Syria is one path of getting there. You know, the the the, the U.S. airstrikes in Syria were you know, supposedly targeting you know, uh, IRGC-linked groups. Um, that's one of the reasons the United States tries to justify its presence there, is to counterbalance Iran's presence in the region. Um, it, it, we don't exactly know where the red lines are for Iran uh, engaging in the conflict. They also have suggested that they, they too do not want this to escalate. Uh, but again, you have an increasing number of forces acting in close proximity to each other um, who have an enormous amount of firepower they could bring to bear on this conflict. Uh, and I see, you know, the presence of U.S. troops in Syria, <laughs> the presence of Iranian-linked groups in Syria, um, tensions, obviously, with Israel, with those groups as well. Um, there is a dangerous potential here um, for, 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 for what has so far been limited skirmishes and airstrikes uh, to escalate. And as you just said earlier, hey, you know what? Hezbollah is involved in the conflict. Israel is acting against Hezbollah. It's not a matter of if they're going to engage one another or not. They are. It's just the level of conflict so far has been one that you know people are willing to accept and that's not setting off alarm bells yet. But both parties, but you know, again, shifting back to Hezbollah and Israel, if they decide to go at each other, it, it will be very scary very fast. Last thing I wanted to ask you about was... Uh... In regards to Biden's requests um, uh, for finances to aid both Ukraine and Israel right now, what does this mean for Ukraine? I mean, this this new war in the Levant, what does that mean for Ukraine? Because I, I know this is an issue that uh, gets very heated with people. I know people that... Uh, Love Quincy, but they disagree with some Quin Quincy authors on Ukraine. So just from an objective uh, analysis, um, not getting into whether people support Ukraine or whether they don't, what does this mean for Ukraine? I mean, could this be you know, bad for Zelensky, uh, what's happening right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think it probably is bad for Zelensky um, for, for a couple of reasons. Some of them more obvious than others. I mean, one is that obviously his cause and his war and it's not the war he chose, but you know, the, the war that he has done a pretty masterful job of keeping on headlines and and maintaining large swaths of public sympathy for not just the United States but around the world is um, now being relegated out of the front pages. Um, and that comes at kind of a dangerous point as that war is. You know, it's not quite there yet. Some would say it is a sort of reaching a stalemate. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, so, you know, his ability now to sort of rally support for another Ukrainian offensive, I, I think, has probably been diminished 
um, as he's no longer able to to get the attention on on his cause that that he was before. Now, there's another aspect here that um, I think is is probably detrimental in the long run uh, for him as well as for the United States' ability to to support Ukraine and Israel, which is that there was always a discussion as the United States was providing particularly artillery and missiles to Ukraine, that at the rate with which we were providing it, um, you know, there was a runway that, that we would reach the end of at some point in terms of the ability of the United States to continue to arm uh, Ukraine engaged in a, in a pretty ugly ground war that was relying heavily on, and this is good, it goes back to the big defense companies, it, it relies heavily on the types of weapons that that frankly, uh, some of these companies uh, were not so interested in making anymore because they were not, the profit margins on them weren't so big. Uh, they weren't the prestige weapon systems. It was the artillery, it was the mortars. Um, and now having another war breaking out where again, as came up in one of those earnings calls, the big demand is gonna be on artillery for Israel. This will shorten even further the runway for uh, the United States' ability to sufficiently arm Ukraine, um, so I think that I think this poses a number of challenges for Zelensky. Uh, I, I think he's, you know, frankly, I think there's going to be greater pressure on him to try to reach some sort of a negotiated uh, settlement to the war. Uh, it's unclear if the Russians are prepared to engage in that uh, type of a discussion at this point. I think both sides, frankly, on the battlefield, need to feel that they've, you know, reached as far as they can and that. Uh, they are truly locked in, in a stalemate. They need to um, feel that they've reached that the exhaustion point. Exactly. Um, and, you know, whether that happens this winter, I I, I can't say. But, uh, you know, if I was Zelensky, I would be starting to look for, you know, other sources of munitions. Because, um, you know, if this war continues in Gaza, uh, I, I think the Israelis have shown that they're able to sort of get their needs prioritized ahead of Zelensky's, uh, potentially at the expense of Zelensky's, and this comes at a time again where already there is discussion about depleted, um, um, you know, U.S. munitions reserves. Last thing I'll ask you is: I saw a recent interview with Biden where he was asked a question that I thought was very poignant and uh, deserved a better response, in my own personal view. He was asked, you know, how is the U.S. going to support two wars, Ukraine on one end, and then? Uh, you know, this war in Gaza on the other end, you know, supporting Israel and Ukraine at the same time. And he sort of just flippantly said uh, something along the lines of, and I am paraphrasing here, folks, but he said something along the lines of, we're the best military in the world. We're number one. Uh, we can do it. And I, yeah. I'm not so sure because, you know, I mean, after the quagmires in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, right. you know, I, I question that. And I'm curious, how do you think this is going to affect the U.S.? Because I feel like it could have domestic uh, effects. And, you know, yeah. this is a dangerous moment. So what do you think the effects on the U.S. are of, of basically supporting two wars on two different fronts? Well, 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 to me, both the question and the answer kind of misses the biggest danger, which is not whether the United States can support two wars at the same time. Um I mean, the short answer is yes, we, we can, at least in the short term. Um, I think a more important question is, what steps are we taking to make sure that we don't get dragged into either of these conflicts 
in a manner that you know would be putting U.S. troops on the ground uh, and potentially having either or both conflicts escalating in some really serious ways that would threaten U.S. national security interests. That is a question that um, I, I don't think has been posed to Biden. And, and I think it's a really important one because you know, a, a key role of his job is to be watching out for U.S. strategic interests. And while it may play well with some of his uh, party and maybe some of the people in his cabinet to, and he may personally believe it, that the best thing, the right thing to do is to, you know, unconditionally essentially support uh, Netanyahu and to, you know, I guess a lesser degree, Zelensky. Um, a more important question is, well, what are the outlines of this support? You know, are there any terms on it? Are there any safeguards in place to prevent our partners, in the case of Israel and Ukraine, from escalating these conflicts in ways that may be actually in the interests, in some respects, to these countries, if they can draw the United States in to fight a war on their behalf, that is hugely beneficial for them. That is in their own rational interest in, in some interpretations one could make. Um, but it might not be in the U.S. interest, and, and it might be very bad for these regions as well. Um, so I think a bit more important question is, hey, what safeguards are in place here? Uh, what and, and more importantly, I guess and this is a, a, another component of that. You know, what are our strategic goals here? Just what are our strategic goals in Ukraine? What are our strategic goals in Gaza? What are the U.S. strategic interests here? What are we trying to achieve via our support? And that doesn't mean that that's not, it's not my backdoor way of saying, hey, we need to end this support tomorrow necessarily. But I think if you're providing this level of support, you need to answer that question. I was going to add, I think the issue is that if you're going to support a war effort, you should have clear goals for that war effort. And yep. I, I think that you're right to say, you know, what are the outline goals? Because I think we have seen in the past where not having clear goals has gotten us, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in the case of, you know, backing the Israeli war on Gaza, um, the Israelis seem to be pretty unclear about what their goals are. You know, they want to eradicate Hamas. Okay, well, whether that's even achievable or not is, I guess, let's just put that on the side and say, we, we don't really know the answer to that. But but there's also the question of, and then what? You know, oh, well, we're going to, you know, temporarily install some sort of a, you know, an occupying government that would, you know, uh, th these are questions that aren't being answered. They're not being answered uh, by the Israeli government. And and that's their own business, but I, I think that in the United States, we should be asking similar questions of the Biden administration. Of, hey, you know, you offered kind of your, you know, your wholehearted, unconditional support of this war effort. The Israelis don't seem to have very clear answers about what their goals are, which is fine, I suppose. But what are our goals? <laughs> Since they can't tell us what they are, do we have goals? Or are we just sort of playing this by ear on a day-to-day -day basis? And, and that is probably my greatest fear, is that, is that we actually don't have an answer to those questions. 
we're just kind of seeing where this goes. They feel political pressure to offer this support. And you're going to cross every one of these bridges as you get to it. Do you think also in closing, uh, do you think also that our being so unconditional in this sort of what's been called the bear hug strategy that Biden is offering with Israel is going to have uh, perhaps negative um, knock on effects. So, for instance, you know, a lot of the global south, which I think we've been trying to build relations in the global south, especially since the breakout of the Ukraine war. Uh, and we've been successful with that in some ways. Uh, it seems like that could go out the window now. And I've already seen, I forget if it was figures from the G7, or, but th there are people saying, you know, we're going to lose all our goodwill with the global South because a lot of the global South identifies with Palestine. Um, do you think there's going to be possible effects like that at work? Yeah. I mean, I, I listen, I mean, I think that, that, you know, the image of the U S and the world is, you know, uh, been badly harmed by, by you know decades of wars that, that that many not just in the global south in the United States and in Europe as well um you know see as having been very harmful and in many cases hypocritical um I, I would also point though to the fact that you know that this could have you know that's sort of a, a bigger uh, you know a strategic question that uh, is an important one to ask but I, this could also have some sort of near-term domestic political uh consequences you know when you look at you know, the folks who are the most upset about um, the U.S. support for Israel in this conflict uh, and the terms of that support uh, are folks within the Democratic Party. Now, I believe still the majority of Democrats seem to be barely in support of, of what the president has done. But, you know, you're seeing people, uh, uh, you know, in Arab Americans in Michigan, a swing state are vastly disgusted by how this White House has behaved. Yeah, a lot of calls uh, and, to just and, say, we're not going to vote for him. <laughs> so. Exactly. And, you know, and if that holds truth a year from now, um, you know, that that in some pretty strategic states, that 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 could be, uh, you know, a, a game changer in the election. Uh, I would also add that, that, that voters, Democratic voters under 35, the majority of them do not uh, approve of, uh, the the White House's uh, handling of this. Um, so you have some really interesting breakdowns happening within the Democratic Party. I think you're going to have to see polling. Um, it, it's very hard, I think, to poll this in terms of how it will impact the election right now, because it's not fair to look at this in the context of would you vote for Biden or would you vote for uh, a third party candidate or would you vote for the Republican nominee, presumptively in Trump? Um, you're going to have to look at it in terms of voter turnout, I think. Um, and that's where it could get really interesting. Um, if, you know, what if, you know, you don't need huge numbers here uh, in swing states of Democratic Biden voting, Biden voters from, from 2020 who say, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to like, you know, it's not flipping my vote, but I, I, I can't pull the lever for this guy. I'm going to stay home. And that's the message that right now is coming out of Michigan. Um, I think. Well, that's a very large demographic of Arab Americans who 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 find this to be you know just disgusting. What's occurring again under thirty fives as well? Where does this go? Uh, the longer this war goes on, probably the the bigger breakdown you're going to see within uh, Biden's uh, supporters. 
uh, and within the Democratic Party. Um, I think a very interesting litmus test will also be how this is polling with with uh, African-American churches. And and uh, uh, I think that because that, that was a major source of you know Biden's successes uh, um, electorally. I think they may have taken some of that for granted. Um, I think we're very early on, frankly, in this conflict and in seeing the political fallout from it. But I think your question about the global south is important. Um, I think that's going to be a more of a long tail, long term um, consequence. Um, I think in the next year we may see domestic political consequences. Well, hey, Eli Clifton, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, anything you want to plug at Responsible Statecraft or uh, how can my listeners just keep up with your work? Yeah, it's responsiblestatecraft.org. Uh, I co-publish a lot of my stuff and it, it'll at least show up on Responsible Statecraft. Uh, and also, you know, check out, uh, I, I've been involved with some of the great video production we've been doing at Quincy Institute. Uh, go to our YouTube channel, please subscribe. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's full of some really good explainer videos. Uh, we have one coming out next week about Robert Menendez and the charges against him, accusing him of being a foreign agent for Egypt. Um, it, it's really good stuff. And, um, you know, we try to break down some pretty interesting uh, domestic and foreign policy um, related stories in ways that, um, you know, are interesting, not asking for a ton of your time. All these videos are like three, four minutes long. And, um, and uh, yeah, it, they're, 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 I think they're really well done. And we have an awesome video producer who's been just churning these things out. Thank you again, Eli Clifton. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eli Clifton. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.